It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Sasha, I am really looking forward to diving into something you shared with me right before we started recording, which was, I believe you phrased it as socially acceptable addictions. That's like something I don't think I've ever heard before, but I'm really fascinated in the things that people do, the behavior, the choices that we make out of a desire or belief system because something feels socially acceptable. In other words, we may not do something because we believe that that thing is not socially acceptable. So we're going to try to hide it or prevent ourselves from doing it. Or if we do actually behave in a certain way or make a certain choice, that's not what we believe to be socially acceptable. Perhaps we feel shame around it. This is something that I've experienced a lot throughout my life. And I imagine is fairly common. So what does that mean for you? Why is that something that you're interested in and exploring a lot in your own life? Do we have like 10 hours, Whitney, <laughs> to unpack this one? We were talking about sort of like, what are the things I've been thinking about lately? And I come from a family. I mean, I do this work as a psychologist. It's no surprise that this is the direction I chose to go in professionally. There was a lot of addiction in my family from my grandparents' generation with substances to my own parents' generation where my parents were not drug and alcohol users at all, very moderate, abstemious in some ways, but major overworkers. So there we're talking about our socially acceptable addictions. And then in my generation, there's addiction in my family with that we've had to deal with. So it's sort of a language I'm sort of familiar with and at the cost to the whole dynamic of the family. But one of the things I think is so interesting is that I think I have that proclivity to overdo it or like go all in. Some of it just because of the way that I'm wired, I have ADHD. So that's like sort of one of my hallmark characteristics is like the hyper-focused or sort of obsessiveness about things, which can be really useful when I'm working on a project. But it also can be really annoying to the other people in my life. And I think that I, for a long time, was like, well, I'm not the, necessarily like the addict in the family. However, I am in when it comes to things, but the world just says these things are okay. Like I am absolutely an overworker. I can get obsessed with my professional endeavors, but the world, at least in the United States, I won't speak for other cultures, but in the sort of Anglo-Saxon culture that is developed in the United States and specific to the US, I think there is this, we overvalue perhaps overworking and it's seen as noble as opposed to a problem. And I think in the last year, because I think my coping mechanism for COVID wasn't necessarily <laughs> baking and eating banana bread, it was work. I just dove into work that helped me feel structured in my own world. And it helped me feel contained and sane and all these things. And none of those stuff is bad. 
we always have to be very conscious of the cost. What's the cost of what I'm doing? What are the beliefs and emotions that are driving this behavior? Does it feel compulsive? Does it feel free? And when I have to take a hard look at some of these things, I think, "Mm, yeah, maybe we veered off a little too far off piste. That's really interesting and certainly extremely relatable because it feels like so many people are talking about this. And we're in a time right now where it's socially acceptable to talk about burnout, exhaustion, stress, overdoing it. There seems to be a cultural awareness, especially amongst millennials, Gen Z, people that are paying more attention to their mental health, perhaps, which is really exciting, but it's still happening. We still have all different types of addictions. I don't know if we will ever be free of them. It feels like as human beings, we're drawn to overdoing things, perhaps. And I'm really interested in the ADHD side of things because that's something I've been exploring in terms of a diagnosis for myself and just deeply fascinated by it because I have so many traits of neurodivergence and I can relate to that hyperfixation. And I can also relate to perhaps feeling valued for working hard. Like I took so much pride in that growing up. I was decent at school, but I didn't feel good enough at school. I really struggled learning. And so that's another common trait of ADHD. I wish I could have been diagnosed back then, right? Totally, totally. I mean, that is like a real common thread with people that have ADHD. They felt like school is hard. But I do find it so funny where working hard, although very highly valued, at the same time, it's like because I had to work hard, I wasn't smart, which is really an interesting belief system. Yes. That actually came up in a book that I was listening, an audio book I listened to on my road trip, and I forget which one, but it was, gosh. I don't recall the listen to so many books, but one of them was talking about girls that, or maybe it was not a gender specific thing, but people at certain schools like Ivy League schools, and you told me that you went to Harvard. So I'm actually curious if this is part of your experience where you had to pretend that being intelligent and getting good grades was effortless. You couldn't admit to people if you were struggling, if it was hard for you. Because it was looked down upon if, or maybe you were afraid of being perceived as not intelligent if you had to work hard for something. Was that anywhere within your experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that was the sort of general idea of someone didn't have to study very hard and they did well. They're a genius. That is an expression of their brilliance. I think there's two researchers that sort of flipped that on its head. And I think it began really with Carol Dweck about growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Cause that's sort of like, it's not hard for me. I'm a natural, therefore I'm smart. That's very fixed mindset oriented and works until you get into an environment where the other people around you are also naturally gifted at something. And all of a sudden your quote unquote natural talent isn't going to be enough. You have to put effort and practice and work into it. Right. So I think that began to be demystified by Carol Dweck's research. And then Angela Duckworth and her research looking at grit, ultimately, she called it grit, but initially she was looking at, she was looking at, what was it? It was IQ versus persistence or self, what was it? 
I'm trying to think what the original study was. Anyway, this is going to haunt me now for the rest of the hour because I'll be thinking about it in the back of my head. But essentially she was looking at, is it someone's willingness to put effort in to something, like how hard they work at something versus how smart they are. And that what she found was that IQ wasn't necessarily the best predictor of later success, that it really had more to do with how persistent is this kid? How much effort do they put into it? Their ability to focus and be gritty in the grit model, in her grit model, effort factors in twice. Someone shall correct me if it is, but it's something to the effect of like talent, like your natural talent times effort equals skill, right? And then like skill times effort equals, or it's the other way around. Anyway, the point being, (laughs) I'm butchering it, forgive me, Angela, that effort factors it twice, right? That it, that it, your effort is, and I'm going to like, hold on, I'm like pausing myself right now because I'm going to go look it up because it drive me insane if I don't. See, I'm the same way. If I was trying to quote something, I have that attachment to getting it right. And I even wonder if that in itself is part of this whole challenge, like getting things right, not wanting to mess up. That's That's my thing or not wanting to be disrespectful. But also I'm afraid of if I say the wrong thing, then I'm afraid people will think that I'm not smart, right? Like I have an attachment to being intelligent. And maybe that's because I felt like I had to work for it. I mean, given what you just shared, I had to be persistent because I did not find school very easy, most subject matters. I was somebody that would really struggle to get an A or an A minus. And I really wanted that. But I was a B student most of the time. And I felt like that wasn't good enough. So I had to be persistent and work harder. I'd beat myself up on. And that carried with me through school and then through my career too. And it's now this like kind of unraveling of like, how is that really serving me? Is this for me or is this for somebody else? And the answer is generally it's for someone else. By the way, I was correct minus the last. So it's talent times effort equals skill. And then skill times effort equals achievement. So high achievement, your effort factors in twice. You can't just be the naturally gifted athlete or the naturally gifted musician and be a world-class performer or a world-class athlete or whatever. It requires both effort and then that creates the skill set. And then the skill requires then it's like skill X effort equals achievement. So it's better to be high on effort than it is to be high on talent. That's really interesting. And it kind of shifts things around, but I don't know if that's a positive thing because going back to this socially acceptable addiction, isn't effort in itself an addiction? What I would say is, I mean, I love what you're saying. We could dig into this, like really drill down into this thing about, I think it's maybe specific to any kind of neurodivergent, but ADHD, people with learning disabilities, feeling like they're not smart enough and that being their sort of cross to bear and having so much to prove. And and that can be a really driving force, but it's typically fueled by shame, which isn't all that, it doesn't feel all that awesome in the long run. That's a whole other thing I think we could talk about. But what I would say for me with this effort and overworking is that overworking for me is not about effort. It's not about deliberate practice. It's about being busy. It's about busying myself, right? It's about using work as a way of distracting myself from things I don't want to attend to. And I'm not talking about work in the sense of, hey, I'm working on a book and I'm writing today. No, I'm talking about like 
loosely work, work that isn't really work, work that's like wasting time, frittering time away, but it's, it's a socially acceptable way to do it. So instead of like, yeah, I watch Netflix in the middle of the day. Well, that's not socially acceptable, right? But I can spend time surfing the net and looking and researching something, which is equally as useless. There may not even really be an objective. It may be like, oh, I'm down in social media rabbit hole. Like I'm on Instagram, but I'm quote unquote doing something for work, but I'm not. But again, I can call that work and then somehow it becomes socially acceptable. It's not a problem, right? It's not, not that watching Netflix in the middle of the day is a problem either. It's just the question is like, is there a cost? Does it get in the way of other things you want to do? And I think in COVID, the blur between work and home got so murky, it became kind of easier to pretend. Absolutely. And that's interesting too, because now there's a lot of, again, younger generational people, millennials, Gen Z, really feeling resistant to going back to an office because they've become so comfortable at home, working from home. And I'm fascinated by that because to your point, that comfort, I think, can be really great now that it's more socially acceptable to work from home. I remember when I had a traditional job and was not working for myself, learning about different work structures. I was reading The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss and thinking like, wow, that sounds amazing. I would love to do that. But I didn't have the comfort level or the dynamic with my employers to ask for that. And it just who's going to say, yeah, you can cut back from 40 hours a week to four hours a week and that's sufficient. But now it's actually becoming more commonplace for people to be putting in less hours, to be working from home, to be creating situations that allow them to thrive. And the neurodivergent side of me is thinking like, wow, I wish I had had that in school, for instance, like maybe I would have done better if I could have done it my way. But to your point, you also have to battle the temptations and you have to have a lot of self-awareness to know like, okay, if I do decide to watch Netflix, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about the cost of it, as you pointed out. And I'm curious, like, how do you balance this for yourself, for your children, for your clients? Like, does this come up, this work-life balance and examining just the cost of things and making these choices for ourselves? First of all, giving an aid person who has ADHD completely unstructured time is a disaster. Don't do it. I don't recommend it. People with ADHD really thrive in a structured environment. It's just the way it is. It's not good or bad. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just set yourself in the same way. There's so many lessons in the way we talk to kids that we could apply to adults that we don't like setting your child up for success, thinking about what are your child's strengths and weaknesses? What do they need help with? What structures do they need in place so that when you're asking them to do something, they're more likely to do it, right? Reducing the friction. Same thing as applies to adults. Like pay attention to who you are. Stop looking online at what other people are doing and actually pay attention to what you need. I need structure, period, end of story. Me without structure is a gong show. Like this just not helping anybody. And by the way, that unstructured time means sometimes to me, it means like, My work life is totally bleeding into my personal life. Let's be honest. Like if I'm working from home, I hear my kids bickering with each other. Yeah, I'm not going to be like, oh, good, time's up, work's over. Like, let me just spend a little bit more time on my email. Because the 
energy cost for me of like dealing with my children's bickering, whether stepping into that environment versus, oh, I'll just get a few more emails responded to. One is easier than the other. One is more interpersonally demanding than the other, right? But I'm not saying it's better. Like I need actually to do. So if you get, like I do, if pursuing work stimulates dopamine, which it certainly does for me because I am a curiosity machine, right? I just like love, I'm interested in everything. I want to learn something. Like I'm constantly, right? It's one of the ways that I express this. So if work is really dopamine stimulating for you or which it is for me, when I shut down work, my brain is like more, 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 more. We want more. We want more in the same way that it's for someone who is having a hard time putting down a drink. Their brain is saying more, 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 have another drink. We want the dopamine stimulated again, that the dopamine equilibrium is trying to self-regulate and your dopamine levels are coming back down again. So your brain's like, whoop, we want that again. We want to stimulate that feeling again, right? Okay, same thing. It works for every single addiction, same kind of mechanism. So for me, it's like, works really dopamine stimulating. So then at the end of the day, like I don't necessarily want to shut it down. Okay, but if I'm taking a step back and looking at well, what's best for me in terms of the life I actually want, kind of mom I really want to be, kind of friend I really want to be, kind of wife I really want to be, the relationships I really want to cultivate, I must enforce boundaries and limits to myself just in the same way that I have to enforce limits in other areas of my life. It's the same, even though it's a socially acceptable thing, like, well, I'm just working. It's a good thing. It's easier. Like if you are someone who's like, man, the more, more, more my brain is asking for is heroin. Okay. You are going to be met with a lot of like, Hey, it's a really good thing for you to set limits. Like maybe in full abstinence, like no heroin would be a good call, right? (laughs) That's probably going to be the party line. I hope it would be. Okay. But if you're dopamine stimulation is from working. It first started maybe with a little bit of organizing work on Sunday night. And then it's, oh, well, I needed to schedule a meeting. I could do it on Saturday morning. Or, hey, I've got this project it overflowed. I'm going to be spending my weekend working on it, right? Okay. there. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when you're like in a sprint and you got to like do what you got to do. But if this is a persistent pattern, right, you begin to see the bleed and it's a slow burn, right? It's not going to be met with as much, like you're not going to be getting necessarily the same kind of feedback from the people in your life. So you have to be more self-regulated. You have to be more self-aware. It's going to require you to be on top of yourself and asking yourself hard questions and being radically honest with yourself. None of which comes easily because your brain is like, no, it feels really good. I like this thing. I want more of it. This episode is brought to you by a sponsor named Athletic Greens. And it really ties well into this conversation because their product, AG1, makes it very easy to get balanced nutrition that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your energy, recovering, all of these things that are so important as we build our awareness, as we work on our personal growth. I know for me, it can be hard to remember to take multivitamins. (laughs) So I really appreciate something that I can turn into a drink because AG1 is a powder that you just add to water. It tastes delicious and it has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, probiotics. I 
sometimes go through phases where I'm not paying close attention to my gut. And then one day I'm like, oh, wait, (laughs) I need to adjust. I need to balance myself out so I can really support my mental clarity and my alertness. And I can do this with a small micro habit of just having this drink that tastes really good. And I love their vitamin D, which is really helpful during the time of year where you don't get a lot of sunlight. Or if you're someone like me who has done a blood test and found out you're low in vitamin D, theirs is really easy to take. You just need a drop of it and you're good to go. Because Athletic Greens is sponsoring the show, they're giving you a free one-year supply of their immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash wellevator. That's athleticgreens.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And that'll help you take ownership over your health through picking up this ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now back to the rest of the episode. The topic of dopamine addiction is super fascinating to me. Like it's not addicted to the dopamine. We're addicted to the subs, like we're addicted to the thing, whatever is stimulating dopamine. The point being is that dopamine is a motivation neurochemical. And so it's motivating us to continue to do the thing that we were doing, to pursue the thing that we were doing. That's what it's. So when our biochemistry is recalibrating, it's like, have you ever had the experience where you have a really, really fun weekend with friends or with your family or with someone and then they leave and you feel forlorn? It's like a piece of your heart has been ripped out. It feels terrible. It physically feels bad. That is, you've been like stimulating that dopamine. You've been having so much. The thing you've been pursuing, pleasure, fun, right? Feels good. And then your body's recalibrating. And in that recalibration, like the reward pain circuitry. And I'm certainly no expert on this at all, but the sort of more recent science on this is showing that that sort of the pain and reward circuitry is in the same part of the brain. So you get the reward, the reward, the reward. And then the end, you have an amazing time or it's a fun night out or amazing dinner. And then it's over. And there's that sort of like, hmm, let down. Okay. The letdown's necessary, like recalibrate. But if we're living our life where we never want to feel the letdown, then we get ourselves into trouble. That's really fascinating. I would imagine a lot of people operate that way because they're jumping from one thing to another. I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts on screen time usage and digital devices, because that's such a huge topic for a parent like yourself. But I'm sure we're all using them, right? We're all addicted to our phones for the, I mean, whether it's like mild or extreme addiction, like we are all to some extent addicted to our phones. So how do you balance that for yourself and for your children? Similar question as earlier. Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Do you create boundaries around that for yourself and your children? Do you encourage them to do that? What is your family's relationship to devices? Oh my gosh. I have such a hard time self-regulating. I have to create external things to regulate it for me. So I use all sorts of barrier apps on my phone that make it harder for me to get, at least make me aware of my usage. 
And by the way, not just like the phone screen time, because I will just click through that. Like, who cares, right? Okay. There's an app called Freedom. It will actually not even allow me to get on it. You can't turn it off once it's clicked in. So if you have it on the schedule, like I'd have it on from, it's on from 8 p.m. to 10 a.m. I can't even get on social media once it's started rolling. Now I can change it in those in other, but I will forget and then 8.15 rolls around and I'm like, ah, can't get on it, right? But that's great. That's precisely what it's there for. Clear space is another one that I find to be really useful. It kind of enforces a little bit of a breathing exercise before you can get into whatever app you've programmed it. So it could be a browser, it could be Instagram, it could be Facebook, it could be whatever it is, TikTok, I don't know, whatever the thing that you spend your time on. And it will say, you've opened it this many times, you've like clicked through this many times, you've used it this many times, but it gives you that little bit of a buffer so that you're going from your automatic brain to your deliberate mind, right? Your thinking mind, you're using your forebrain your prefrontal cortex or your executive function to actually make the decision. So I find that to be also really helpful because in that 15 minute, 30 second, I'm sorry, 15, 15 second, 30 second little pause that it gives, that can be enough time for me to have a moment of like, okay, I love you. You're doing this because you just don't really want to do that other thing or you're bored or is this really, do you really want to go on right now? No, it gives me enough time to have a moment with myself to be like, you don't, this is just a knee jerk automatic response. You don't really need this right now. So I have to create these external barriers. Otherwise, like I am completely like, I mean, left to my own devices, Lord have mercy. (laughs) This is not ready. Seriously. Like I know that as adults, we're supposed to be all self-regulated, but there's things that I find challenging that I have to create. My self-regulation is in creating boundaries for myself external boundaries. My husband has a wonderful phrase. He's like, I have point of sale discipline, meaning at the grocery store. He's like, I just have the discipline to not buy something at the grocery store. But if you bring it into the house, I'm going to eat that snack. So note, paying attention to who you are and what are the kind of limits that you need to set for yourself that make you easy, your life easier. They make managing yourself easier. This in my mind is self-care is not getting a darn manicure. It is, are you paying attention to the limits you need to set for yourself to make managing your mind easier, less stressful? I love that. That's such a fantastic point. And it actually ties into something else you had mentioned wanting to talk about, which is the willingness to say no, because no is a boundary. So I'm curious about your relationship to the word no. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think about being the work of adulting is helping to set limits for yourself. And there's a lot of buzz around boundaries, but essentially that's what a boundary is. It's, can you set, and I think people struggle with external boundaries, but I think the thing that people struggle with even more is internal boundaries. And by the way, not from a place of like being punitive or shaming, but from a place of true love, like the way that we set boundaries with the child, right? So you're at the grocery store, it's 30 minutes before dinner time, and your child wants to get a donut. And we're not yelling at our child and saying, what is wrong with you? You want to have a donut? And it's like, okay, I understand why you want to have a donut because donuts are delicious. And we can get one tomorrow at a different time. But right now we're about to have dinner in 30 minutes. So the answer is no, we're not having a donut, right? 
I know it's a bummer. I understand, but it's not a good idea. Okay. That is not shaming, judgmental. Like it makes sense that a kid wants a donut and it makes sense that we're saying not right now, not a great idea if we want them to eat their dinner, right? And arguably that limit is important. It's important that a kid is given more nutritionally dense meal than a donut, right? Okay. But for an adult, we get into all this nonsense around like, how do we limit ourselves and how, like, are we over, are we setting very shaming and restrictive limits? We're either not setting limits or we do set, like the whole language around this is so murky and messy and hard for people to talk about. It's like adults need to set limits in the same way that kids need to set limits. And we do it for our kids from a place of love. Like, hey, kiddo, it's bedtime. Imagine if we said, hey, kiddo, it's bedtime to ourselves. (laughs) I might think about that (laughs) for myself. Right. And I mean, like, I think this is something that our ability to be able to set loving limits with ourselves, because they setting limits is loving is an enormously important skill set. And it's challenging. It can be a challenging. And sometimes like they're annoying. You don't want to do it. Sometimes you just want more, 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 more. But recognize the trade-off, right? Like recognizing what the cost, what's the cost of something and really being honest about it. I'm curious about how this ties into getting unstuck because in a way you could think that setting limits would keep you stuck, right? Like, I don't want to feel limited. I want to feel free. And freedom feels almost like the opposite of being stuck. And you have a deep interest in helping people get unstuck. So I'm curious, what does that mean in your work? In the work that I do, I think that there is the science aspect, which is we're always looking at what are the sort of general laws that apply here about human behavior the way that the human brain operates, the sort of like heuristics or rules of the human organism. And that's the science piece, right? So we're looking at like, on average, how does this work? But then there's this other aspect of it, which is the art, which is one person's experience, one person's, their own specific story, the way things are for them, what happened to them, how they've internalized things like that's specific and unique to a person. And my work with clients is always in that intersection of, These are the general kind of laws that regulate or guide human behavior that we have to contend with perhaps. And then what about you and your story and your own experience? And then this kind of how those two things interact together, which is in my mind, like the art of coaching, it's there in that intersection. So right, for some people, they're stuck in their limits, like they're stuck in their restriction in some way, whether that's professional things that they risk they won't take or fear of other people's perception or thoughts about them. And it keeps them really locked in. But for another person, their struggle may be on the other side where they're like, oh my gosh, my life is a total free for all. I don't know how to say no to myself nor other people. And it's just total chaos, right? So for one person, it may be just like there's a rigidity to their limits. And for another person, it's like, they're just it's completely boundaryless, right? So it's different for each person. And I think that this is part of the problem with, and I'm on social media, so here, but I think it's part of what we get into trouble with a little bit when social media is like people will read a post and say, oh my gosh, does this mean that I'm like this? Like, no, maybe it's something in general, or I've noticed this or something. You're the expert on you. And everyone knows, like, you know, 
if you're struggling with something that's too rigid and you know, when you're struggling with something that's too loosey goosey, you know, what are some other ways that people tend to get stuck or is it mainly those kind of two sides of feeling stuck because they're doing too much, wanting too much? Like it's, it's like abundance might be their issue versus somebody who's stuck because they don't feel like they're enough or they don't feel like they have enough. You know, it's like those, the enoughness comes up a lot for me in my head, but what are some other ways that people get stuck? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that really when we get stuck, it's that we have a particular lens that hasn't evolved in the way we've grown. Our beliefs haven't grown up with us. So we may be in our forties and still saying things to ourselves like, if this person's disappointed with me, I can't handle it. Okay. That is, and I have a lot of empathy for that. But if we really look at it for what it is, not a very sophisticated belief system, right? I mean, that's something that like one could hear an eight-year-old saying, I don't want to disappoint my mom or whatever it is, right? So I'll do that because I don't want my friend to be upset with me. Okay. So this makes sense developmentally for those younger years. But as we get older, and by the way, there's a lot of value, like there's a lot of goodness in there, which is, oh, but there's a kid who's paying attention to other people's feelings. That's good. Has an awareness of their behavior impacts other people. That's good. Like these are all very positive things. Okay. But then if we evolve, we, we grow up, but this belief doesn't grow with us. So we're still believing something that is, hasn't evolved along with us then we can get stuck in it. So maybe, yes, like if I say no, or if I don't do X, Y, Z, someone will be disappointed. Or if I tell the truth, someone will be disappointed in me. And that might be true. But then we may also then learn, but I I could handle it. I was able to handle it. And there was a payoff on the other side of it, which is I felt more in integrity and that actually felt really awesome. So I was willing to tolerate that someone's disappointment because I felt in more in alignment with myself. Okay. That's way more nuanced. That's more sophisticated, but we have to be willing to continue to grow and to test out these belief systems. So at the root of our stuckness is often sentences. They sound like something a seven-year-old might say, or a 10-year-old might say, and we all have them. Like I was doing, so I had a coaching session this morning. We were talking about productivity and I said, productivity is fill in the blank. And it was a really an interesting thing that came up. It was like, basically we're saying like productivity is the permission to then relax later. So there was a lot of beliefs around like, if I'm productive, then I'm allowed to relax or then I'm allowed to enjoy myself later. One was like, productivity is like checking all the things off my to-do list. Okay. All of these things. And we were having a conversation about this. I was like, guys, we need to recognize that our beliefs around productivity are not particularly sophisticated. Why is checking boxes off a to-do list productive? To what end? Do we know what the end goal is? Are we actually going somewhere? Are we just being busy? Is being busy, like, is the being busy the point? It was just an interesting conversation and recognizing like part of our job as adults is to actually grow ourselves up in these ways and to think about things with a little bit more sophistication because in changing our beliefs around it, we change our behavior. So if someone's like running around busy all the time, 
we need to examine the beliefs around why being busy is good. What's the payoff? Because that behavior is goal-directed. So like, okay. So if the belief is I have to be productive to be able to have downtime. Okay. Well, then we're just going to be someone who creates stuff to do all the time because the vehicle to feel better is to be busy. But we might want to actually like drill down into like, okay, well, what, how are we defining productivity? What does it actually mean? Do you have a filter for what goes on the to-do list? I don't know. Right. But this is the relationship that we want to develop with ourselves as adults. If we want to continue to grow and develop and not continue with the same behaviors over and over and over again. And you use that phrase running around and it reminded me of something you're very passionate about right now, which is mental fitness. That's the term you use for this. You have Mind Your Mind Mental Fitness Club. And I'm curious, what does mental fitness mean as compared to physical fitness running around? But you're describing almost as if it is a mental fitness That's one definition of mental fitness, how your brain kind of can go around in circles and feel all busy. But I imagine that there's a different definition for the work that you're doing. Mental fitness, I really define in three ways, which is one, are you able to distance yourself from your thinking and look at it more objectively and question it? Secondly, are you able to be more emotionally flexible and tolerate challenging emotions, things that don't feel awesome. And, and instead of using different substances or behaviors to escape those feelings, but actually sitting with them and looking at them and leaning into it. So having that more of that emotional flexibility. And then thirdly, the ability to take brave and committed action and close that intention action gap. So I want to do something and then I'm actually doing it as opposed to, which I think a lot of us, myself included, struggle with. Like I have this intention, but I'm not following it up with action. And there is this chasm between what I intend and what I actually do. And living in that chasm feels awful. That There you are with stuck. If you want to know where stuck lies, it stucks in that, it, you're stuck in that abyss in between intending to do something and doing it. That rings so true to me, right? Because it seems like so many people have clarity for what they want. But then that stuckness, you're describing that abyss of not knowing how to get to that. And it's not always just the steps. I'm somebody, I'm curious if you're the same way, Sasha. Sounds like our brains work similarly where I love figuring things out. I love solving problems. So if I want something, I'll just figure out how to do it and I'll go do it. I have that motivation that you were describing earlier. And I've always been intrigued by people who don't have that. I've kind of for a while thought, well, everybody must have that ability. But some people, it seems like they may want something, but they really don't know how to get it. And then they just get stuck in that abyss. So what does it take for somebody who feels that stuckness? How do you guide them through? And is this what you do in the club that you've created? It's a space to do this kind of self-examination and this work and actually closing that gap, taking that action and having that, first of all, just learning basic things about how your brain operates, tools as to how to manage your mind. Your mind is a wily little thing, right? It takes skill and we have to actually put some effort into it to be able to manage our minds. So learning those tools and skills and then having the 
social support around taking action and this sort of being an ethos of the community that we're in, which is so amazing, right? It's an amazing thing to be able to know that you have a soft landing, a support place to do all that work. So, I mean, when people are in that place of stuck, the question is like, is that friction enough? Do they feel enough tension or friction where they're actually willing to do something about it? There are a lot of things in our life that can down the road. They're like, oh, it just feels hard. Tolerating the kind of low grade frustration or ickiness of it, the tolerating that kind of like low grade irritant is, it feels like it would be better than the cost of actually addressing it. So for most people that really has to do with examining their thinking, what are they thinking that makes it seem like tolerating this is better than actually changing it? If someone is like being productive is everything, because if I'm not productive, I can't relax. And if that belief system goes unexamined, then yeah, you're just going to be a machine like running around like your ass is on fire, right? Because that's what you've set yourself up. And if I said to that person, just do less, they're like, you're out of your mind because I'll feel crappy. And they will, they will feel crappy. So the real work here is understanding like, oh, I have this belief that I've kind of made up that by the way, is kind of culturally supported that the more I do, the better I am, then I'm allowed, I'm given permission to take a break or to relax. Okay. But if we like really pull back from this belief system, most people are living their life where they're like, I just need to get this thing done. Then I can relax. And that may be something in a short term, but then it may be a project. It may be a career. And their whole mentality is like, when this is over, then I'll have fun. And they're shoving their entire life to some future fantasy land of retirement or a future fantasy land of something being done for them to be able to enjoy their life. And when you take a step back from it, it's like, well, that's not a really good proposition. This is so deeply fascinating to me. And, and like you said, at the very beginning of our recording, we could easily talk about this for 10 hours because understanding where people's beliefs come from and how do they change it, how they change their behavior. I mean, I love it. I'm fascinated. And it sounds like you are too. And I'm so grateful that you spent the short amount of time that we had today to start exploring it. And I would love to know for somebody who wants more from you, what is the next step for them? I have your social media that'll be listed on the Wellevator show notes. So that's at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R in the podcast show notes section for anyone who wants to go find Sasha online. But beyond that, I can also link to this mental fitness club that you've developed. I'd love to hear a little bit more about for somebody who wants to join that, what are the next steps for them? Yeah, well, it started because I had Mind Your Mind was a course that I ran with women and sort of a deep dive intense experience with a cohort of women. And there was a learning component, so curriculum And I want to teach people the sort of science behind this, the foundation, and then also some really practical tools. And then once the course was over, a lot of my clients were saying, we don't want this to end. This has been a game changer. So we ended up sort of switching gears and well, we ended up having an alumni membership. So there are many of our alums are in currently in sort of mental fitness club for women in Mind Your Mind on a monthly basis. And my idea here, which is what I loved, which is as a developmental psychologist, like I have to own that this isn't something that you just want and done. Our growth and development is continual and you're always 
a fun life, an adventure of a life is one where you're, you're bumping up your growth edge. And there may be times when you're just sort of like, Oof, man, this has been an intense time. I need a little bit of a break. I don't feel like doing any growth and development right now. No problem. You need a summer vacation. You got it. That's sort of mind your mind was set up in this way that it's not cost prohibitive. So as a way of something that you can do as an ongoing basis where there may be times like you may have a three months where you're like, I am so dialed into this. And then a few months where you're like, you know, I just want to watch replays and kind of keep in the mix, but not be fully deeply engaged. I need a little bit of a respite from this, which makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. So that it was really designed in that way. It's like, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Your growth and development is going to happen from cradle to grave, as they say, right? It's like, it doesn't end. So if we're living a life where we are committed to that growth and development, which has so many benefits, it makes life so much more enjoyable. The task that you're struggling with at age 45 is not the same task you're going to be struggling with at 65. And it shouldn't be. It's like suggesting that the task that a two and a half year old should be the same as a 12 year old's dealing with. No, they're dealing with totally different developmental stages, tasks, challenges. And the same is true in adulthood. So being in a growth community where you're actually without outside the context of pathology. So it's not about like something's wrong with you. You need to be fixed. It's no, we're here acknowledging that we want to be in a growth community because we want to continue on this. Like we want to be on our growth curve as adults. And I think that we lose sight of that. And that's what my clients will say. Like they're working on one thing and then they have a total breakthrough in that area. And they're like, oh, sort of like opens the aperture. They're able to see more. Then they're like, ooh, this is something that really, if I could clean this area of my life, things would really be more smooth. Things would be better. Like my life would be better. And it's true. So being a part of this growth curve and helping women kind of be on their growth curve is just so exciting for me. I'm going to pause for just a couple minutes or less <laughs> to give a shout out to the tool that has made this episode possible. If you are enjoying the high quality audio, if you enjoy seeing the video version of episodes like this over on YouTube, that is all made possible by Zencaster. And I'm shouting them out because for listeners like you, they have made a huge difference. And I think it's really important to share behind the scenes, like how do I do things like this? How do I make it sound good? How do I edit? How do I uh, monetize with sponsors like this? I always want to be really transparent. And my favorite podcast tool for recording is Zencaster. That's Z-N- C-A-S-T-R. And if you're thinking about starting your own show, or perhaps you have a podcast and you want to take it to another level, Zencaster is one of very few tools that I wholeheartedly recommend after using it for over two years. I jumped on this platform once the pandemic started in 2020, and I haven't turned back I think they're absolutely amazing and they have gotten even better recently. You can record video in 4K. You can even distribute your episodes now. You can monetize, like I said, work with sponsors. I could go on and on. I'll share more in some future episodes because Zencaster is sponsoring this show for a few months now. 
I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So if you go to zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the promo code Wellevator, you'll get 30% off your first three months of their paid platform features. You can use it for free, but I will say that the paid versions of Zencaster are really worthwhile. So again, that's zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. And you're going to enter the promo code Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I've made it super easy so you don't have to memorize it. It's in the description of this episode on your podcast player, as well as on the show notes at wellevator.com. If you have any questions about Zencaster, let me know. But let's get back to the episode now. Sasha, I'm excited about so much that you've discussed today. I think this is so important and needed. And it it just feels nourishing to explore these things and to have a communal space to do that and to have the guidance of someone like yourself is fantastic. And I love your belief systems. (laughs) There's so much more to absorb from you. I'm very grateful, as I said. Yeah. And one thing I want to say, like, just as sort of, I think is important, I should have said this earlier, but one thing I think is just so important just to say out loud is that so many of the challenges that women, and I'm speaking directly to women, men struggle with this stuff too, guys. So I'm not like, I'm not leaving you out. It's just, I happen to work more with women, but so many of the struggles that my clients face, like people pleasing or setting boundaries or making decisions, sort of analysis paralysis and feeling totally paralyzed perfectionism, procrastination, these things that people struggle with, you can see them from a developmental lens. There's nothing wrong with you. It's that these are developmental tasks and challenges that we need to work through and they're uncomfortable and it kind of sucks, right? Like it sucks. It really sucks to be a kid and to be dealing with separation anxiety. It does not feel good. Kids are crying. They are unhappy. They're not enjoying separating from their caregiver. That's not pleasant to a child. It's just in the same way in adulthood when a person is having to work through, oh my gosh, I am going to make a decision that this person I deeply value isn't going to agree with. Okay. Cue the tears, cue the nausea, cue the self-doubt, cue the angst, all of it. Like this is totally normal. And I worry sometimes that we've pathologized everything. Like I've got an issue with this. It's like, no, it's just part of the normal growth and development as an adult. And my vision with Mind Your Mind and what we've created in this community is really sort of saying like, these are the normal challenges of adulthood and we're all here to work through this together. Nothing's wrong with you that you have a problem making a decision about, I mean, it would be like, I spent six hours deciding what sheets to get. People are like, I'm so, I'm kind of secretly embarrassed. Isn't that embarrassing? I'm like, no, actually from a developmental perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. You want to get it right. You want other people are going to have opinions. And it's like worse when it's a guest bedroom, like people are going to be staying here. They're going to have opinions about what bloody sheets I bought, right? And like people are all up in their head about it. And they're like, isn't that embarrassing? What's wrong with me? I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. This is the developmental task. This is you growing into your self-authorship. This is you growing into an adult who has an internalized self-concept. Like it's a big developmental leap. So I just wanted to sort of take all of these things kind of out of this language of like disease, disorder, dysfunction, pathology. And like, let's just put it like, we're just talking about growth and development in the same way kids grow and develop. 
adults do too. That's all so important. And I feel like there's very few things more comforting than being told that you're okay. This is normal. There's nothing wrong with you because it's true. So many of us struggle with that. And again, another reason to just feel appreciative for your time here today, for the work that you're doing, to have that messaging and that support that you offer is just so absolutely wonderful. I'm deeply grateful for it. Well, it's so why the work you do is so important, right? Is giving people a comfortable space to be honest about what's really going on. Because I think for most people, it's really normalizing. It's like, oh, everybody who seems so has it all together, like they've got lots of struggles too. Not because something's wrong with them, but because they're human beings. Yeah. And the more that we can open up about that, it just creates so much depth and room space for us. And you're absolutely right. So I'm glad we have similar missions here and are not afraid to get uncomfortable because the name of the show is that just growth as a human being is uncomfortable, sometimes physically, emotionally, mentally. And that reminder from someone like you who's been studying this on a professional level that it's developmentally okay. (laughs) It's so reassuring. So thank you again. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, we could talk about this forever. It's like, this is me on my dopamine curve being like, more, more, more. I don't want it to end, right? You see it? You can hear it in my voice. I'm like, wait, really? I feel the same way. But as a boundary, time boundaries are something that I've always worked in being respectful of people's time. Super hard boundary to create. (laughs) The the reason that I have to go is A, because my dog is not well. So I need to go make sure that she's okay. And then also because I've committed to getting back into exercise and that has been something that's been really hard for me to make consistent. So I have to create real external boundaries around making it happen. Otherwise, it's the first thing that I blow off. And I've had to get really honest about how beneficial it is and how good it makes me feel and how there's so much positive payoff for that one hour of working out that as easy it is for me to say like, eh, I got other important things to do. I have to set limits with myself. So this is me telling you, I have to make myself go. Yes. And I'm going to hold you to that and create that container, that much needed structure. As much as I don't want this to end either, we're going to work on that and practice it in real time in front of the listeners today. And for the listeners, if you want any of the resources, I hope that you do, they will be at wellevator.com. And again, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. The full transcript, there'll be a video eventually. There will be the links to everything to make it super easy. And also in your podcast player, if you just click the see more button or description to expand it out a little bit, you'll find some of the links there too. So you don't have to go to the website if you don't want to. I'm trying to reduce the (laughs) barriers to entry to take the next steps for you to grow as a human being. So thanks again, Sasha, for being here. And thanks to the listener for tuning into this wonderful conversation that we don't want to end. I love it. Whitney, thank you so much. It was so fun. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.